Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew today, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. We, uh, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, for the, last, well, for the past month. And um, if you're new with us, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is in the Gospel of Matthew, really chapters 5 through 7. And as a review here from the past month, it's been said that the greatest preacher preached the greatest sermon ever preached. And I pray that you guys are experiencing that to be true as we go through Jesus' sermon sentence by sentence here, verse by verse. Um, really, we spent the last four weeks um, looking over the first four sentences of Jesus' sermon. There's a lot to it. And... Um, we're starting off with what's called the Beatitudes here. English word Beatitude, it comes from the Latin Beati. Uh, it's translated as blessed or happy. God wants us to be happy. And um, Jesus has taught us that. As a review, number one, Jesus says if we want to be happy, we have to do things a little bit different than we normally think we do. Number one, we have to address the sin in our life. It involves a dying to ourself. In verse 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two, Jesus said, if we want to be happy, we must start seeing our sin the way that God sees it. And we must address our sin that he, the way that he wants us to address it as well. In verse 4, he said, blessed are those who mourn their sin, those who turn from their sin and they are disgusted by it and that we no longer participate in it. We run from it. We, we run from our sin and we run into the arms of Jesus. It's called repentance. And number three, if we want to be happy, Jesus said that we must choose humility in our life. We must use the power, whatever power we may have, the influence, whatever status we may have, not to take advantage of people, but to, to get low, to be meek, to serve others. We are to surrender our power, no matter how much or how little, we are to surrender that to Almighty God. And in verse 5, Jesus said, blessed are the humble, or the meek, or depending on your translation, the gentle. But today's very interesting because Jesus turns the corner on the Beatitudes. Verse 6. The fourth Beatitude is like a pillar. We've got the first three that flow into this pillar. And what we're going to see here is that this pillar, the, the other three flow out of it. And um, what we're going to start is if we've gone through the first three Beatitudes, we're going to start seeing some fruit in our life. And really... With this fourth beatitude, it starts to ripen. That fruit does. Uh, how does that fruit begin to ripen? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand 
for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 1 to give us the full context here of the Sermon on the Mount so far. When he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Amen and amen. That is the word of the Lord for us here at River. Please have a seat. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So as we move through these Beatitudes verse by verse here, we're really starting to see the Lord's progression in His sermons. Because the first three Beatitudes really are somewhat negative. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are humble. And the reason that we perceive them as negative is because Jesus is commanding us to stop doing everything we've always done. As we all know, this kind of of radical change is just a little difficult in our lives. It's excruciating. It's slow. The process never goes away, does it? You guys remember the old joke? God, please help. I'll do anything but change. It's true, isn't it? God, I'll do anything you want, but just change everybody else around, around me. I, I, I don't want to change. Uh, we may not pray that way, but it seems like we sure do act like it a lot of the time. Uh, the first three Beatitudes, they are a, really a part of denying ourselves and picking up our cross and, and following Jesus. We read about that in Luke chapter 9. And after we struggle through the first three Beatitudes here, Jesus shows us how the center of our Christian life hangs on this fourth beatitude. So let's take a look at this verse. Blessed. As a review, that word blessed or happy in the Greek is makarios. It literally means happy. God wants you to be happy. The problem, though, is that our definition of happiness is not the same as God's. This idea of being blessed or happy, it implies that there is an inward satisfaction in my heart, that does not depend on external circumstances. God is moving all of us along this journey, right? It doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter, what's going on around us. We have a choice. As Christians, we have a choice whether or not someone or something is going to steal my joy. So we can still choose happiness whether life is good or it's difficult. So back to verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those. Blessed are those. Jesus points to a specific group of people here. As with the other Beatitudes, blessed are those people. 
Uh, what kind of people? Back to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now, at this point, we've got a huge problem. There's a huge disconnect, um, a colossal disconnect, right? We could say between where Jesus was preaching 2,000 years ago and where I'm preaching today. You and I, you know, we're starving if we miss lunch by 30 minutes, right? Y'all leaving me up here like that. Thank you, Jim. It pays to be honest in church, doesn't it? But many, if not most people, though, in the first century, they were living in poverty. They were living day to day with their food and with water. So we don't know, really, guys, we don't know how good we have it with the Lord's provisions. Thank you, Lord, for the, the food and the fridge and the house, uh, the roof over our heads, right? And the clothes on our back, the food that's in the pantry. We don't know how good we have it. Many of those people who are listening to Jesus at this moment, they were literally hungry and thirsty as Jesus preached those words. As Jesus said those words, their throats are parched. Their, their stomachs are growling. They, they didn't want something to eat. They needed something to eat. They needed sustenance. And Jesus provides us here with an illustration of the two most powerful forces in the, in the physical life to address the, the desperate needs of our spiritual life. So desperation, when you, when you hear this idea of hungering and thirsting, after righteousness, it's, Jesus is communicating, this is a desperate situation for people. But Jesus throws his disciples here a curveball. And back to verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for food. He, he's not talking about physical food and water here. He's talking about righteous living, right being, right thinking, now, at some point, at this point, really, some of us as church people, we, we may think that Jesus is getting theological, right? Meaning imputed righteousness. So imputed righteousness. On the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt, and, and he paid that debt with his own blood. And two spiritual transactions took place on the cross. The first is that our sin was imputed to Jesus. It was transferred. It was cast upon Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. The second spiritual transaction that took place was that his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, his right living was spiritually transferred. It was imputed back to us. His perfect life, that's righteousness. So our right standing before God has been trans... The right standing that Jesus had before a holy God has now been transferred to us. So we've got Jesus, the, the perfect son of God. He was murdered on a cross. He was buried in a grave or in a tomb for three days. And then he was resurrected by God the Father. So Jesus walks out of his own grave, right? And, and that proves that he, he is who he said he, he was, and also, he still is, because he's, he's still living. He's still on the throne. That's the gospel, guys. That's the good news. That's how we are saved from ourselves. That's how we are saved from a, a very real place called hell. 
And the reason that Jesus gave his life for ours is because more, this idea of moral perfection, it, it's what it takes to have a relationship with God the Father. We don't have that. We can never achieve that on our own. So this idea of it, imputed righteousness, the giving of Jesus' perfect life, his right standing to, to sinners, that's imputed righteousness. Uh, that, that's why we call uh, Jesus our substitute. Theologically, he is, he is um, it, it's about a substitutionary atonement. So I, I digress there, and all that to say this. Imputed righteousness is not what we're talking about here. Um, and the reason that we're not talking about imputed righteousness from Jesus is because Matthew doesn't use that term in this way. We don't learn about the theological concept of imputed righteousness until we start reading uh, Paul's epistles. So in Matthew's gospel, righteousness refers to a right thinking that leads to right actions. Right? Dr. Bivens last week, he, he talked about the head and the heart and the hands. That's what we're talking about here. So it brings us to our first key point. Key point number one. Righteousness refers to right thinking that leads to right behavior or right actions. Righteousness. Dikeasune. The root word DK there, it means justice. There's a justness to our life. We could say it this way. There's a divine holiness to our life. So to be divinely holy, it means that people, Christians, we, we must adhere to. We must abide by. We must comply with and conform our lives to the standards that are required by God. So, okay, what's required? Well, we as sinners, we must conform to God's standards of what is morally right. And we can only do this, number one, if we have repented from our sin, if we have confessed that Jesus is Lord and that we do believe from our heart that he was raised from the dead. That's Romans 10, 9. And then as a result of Jesus being our Lord and our Savior, right? Jesus said himself, he says, you got to be born again. That's what he means by that. It's only then, after we are born again, that we can kind of understand, it's a very slow process, right? That we must accept God based on his conditions. Those conditions are found in his word, and it's God's standards that define true righteousness. Um, Self-righteousness, on the other hand. Self-righteousness is defining what is right based on our own opinion. So here's the danger in self-righteousness. that We become our own moral authority. Truth is, is defined by whatever I say it is. So in other words, I get to define the reality around me. If I say a fetus is not a baby, then it's not. If I say that I identify as a woman, then I am. And we all realize that's all nonsense, right? A self-righteous person, first and foremost, he denies, and this is funny to me, right? We, we, gotta, we, we have to define what truth is. So the, the word now is you got to say true truth, real truth, godly truth, because truth is not enough. So a self-righteous person denies true truth. And they do that by neglecting the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross that we just talked about. A self-righteous person scoffs at the idea that they must repent from sin. 
You know, they roll their eyes back in the, into their heads, you know. They scoff at that. A self-righteous person looks down on others with contempt because they just, you, you disagree with them. And self-righteousness is why the leaders, the religious leaders of the first century, why they continually attacked Jesus and they eventually murdered him. See, these religious leaders, they love their religion and they murdered Jesus because Jesus, he called them out on their self-righteousness. Jesus said, you guys need to repent. Why, Jesus? Because the kingdom of God is near. I'm here. The kingdom of heaven has come down. The religious leaders of the day, see, they thought that their form of religion would save them. This idea of religion, it's, it's keeping all the rules somehow, some way. That's going to qualify me for my ticket to heaven. And by the way, it's not God's rules that they kept. It was theirs. They made up their own rules, and then they kept, they kept them. Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, nope, you guys, your, your rules don't matter. You have to repent. You have to believe that I'm God. But a, a self-righteous person refuses to repent and believe. So back to verse 6 here. What's the result of, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Jesus tells us, he says, they will be filled. The idea here of being filled or satisfied comes from the Greek term hortazo. The picture here is that a farmer is feeding his animals so much food, they don't want any more food. They've, they've had all they can have for that meal. So in other words, Jesus is promising total and complete satisfaction for those who seek him. Now, this is so cool. So I need to get in the weeds a little bit here. To illustrate this point, I got to get all geeky on you in Greek, all right? You, you guys know that I'm a geek, right? Is that all right? All right. Okay. Hey, the redhead, you can settle down a little bit. Uh, stay with me. This is fascinating. First, first and foremost, there's a definite article in the Greek that we're not seeing here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness, for the righteousness, meaning it is God alone who defines what is morally right and what's wrong. I mean, there's, there's one way. The Christian life is one way, guys. It is a narrow gate, and we have no idea how narrow that gate is. Matthew chapter 7. Secondly, in the Greek, verbs like hunger and thirst, they are typically followed by the pronoun of. So let me show this to you. They would say, a Greek person would say, I hunger for of food. I, I, I thirst for of water. Now, I get it. It sounds strange, right? But the Greek would not say, I hunger for food. And the reason that he's not going to say that is because I hunger for food, that represents all the food that there is. In other words, he doesn't want all the food that there is. He simply wants enough to satisfy his hunger. Same with water. The Greek person would never say, I thirst for water, because he doesn't need all the water in the world. He would say, I thirst for of water. I just need a little bit of water. I just need some to quench my thirst. Now, I bring this up because the normal use of the Greek is rejected with this beatitude. The correct Greek usage in this verse, it should say this. Blessed are they who do hunger 
and thirst after of righteousness. I just need a little bit of righteousness. See, it's rejected. Why is it? Because when it comes to righteousness, Jesus overwhelmingly provides all that there is. He gives us everything. Jesus wants to give away all, his, all, all the righteousness, not just in part, but all. Y'all with me? I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be provided for you. See, our part is to seek. God's part is to satisfy. By the way, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, all these things that we worry about, all these things that trouble us this morning, all these things that weigh us down, that are listed previously in Matthew chapter 6, my health, am I going to feel good today? My money situation, my retirement, my kids, my business, whatever those things are that are weighing you down, please make a note here. This is a great verse to memorize and say it every morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day that you've made. I choose to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And I, I believe and I know and I'm going to experience that all these things will be provided for me. It's a wonderful verse. I'm also reminded of Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's buried in a field. And a man, he found the treasure. But he didn't take the treasure. What did he do? He reburied it. Why on earth would he do that? In his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys the whole field. That's, that's the kind of joy and the satisfaction that the Lord is pointing here to. Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in all of scripture, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I, why do I have what I need? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want anything. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Look at this, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Look at this. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. The, the righteousness of God, it overflows out of a Christian's life. When you bump into the world, what spills out? Anger, hatred, name-calling, resentment, jealousy, on and on and on and on. But what happens when you bump into a Christian real hard? Our cup overflows with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Not perfectly, by the way, but yes, increasingly in our life. Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Can't you just see Jesus pointing at the well? Ma'am, every... Everyone who drinks this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him, I, this is a gift. I'm going to give you a gift. I will give him, will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him, he reiterates, this is a gift from me, uh, will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Jesus does two amazing things with this conversation. 
First thing that he does, he calls himself living water. Jesus satisfies our thirst eternal, eternally. He is eternal water. The second thing that Jesus does is he points the Samaritan woman to the truth that's found in the Old Testament. Jesus alludes to this passage here in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, for my people have committed a double evil. And then he calls himself the fountain of living water. Number two, he goes on to say they've dug cisterns for themselves. Wells. They, they, they've, they, these, these cisterns, they are cracked and they can't hold any water. So Jesus knew how hungry and thirsty this Samaritan woman is for truth at this woman. If you know the story, she's been married five times. She's living with someone who was not her husband. So that's six men, by the way. And if you know anything about numbers in the Bible, six is the number of man. Six is the picture of man's best effort. And yet here's Jesus, the seventh man in her life, standing right before her. And he's telling her now how to quench her thirst. And guys, seven is the number of perfection. So in other words, this woman was digging her own cistern with men who are cracked and they're broken. And she's trying to find happiness through all these different relationships. And these men, no matter how good they, they may have been to her at one time or another, they could never fulfill that God-sized thirst. The, the testimony of, of the Samaritan woman, she's been looking for Jesus through all of these relationships. And all of a sudden, she's standing right before him. I love that. And here's the thing with the story, um, with that particular story. Jesus didn't only offer himself as living water to her, he also offered living water to the Jews during the feast of what's called the tabernacles. So let's touch on a, a little bit of, of biblical history this morning. The Feast of the Tabernacles or the booths or the shelters, it was, a, it was a major celebration for the nation. It was really a party for the Jews for the entire week. So what they did is they built tents, they lived in them for a week, and this was to remind them that their ancestors wandered in the desert for 40 years. And even though they wandered in the desert, God still provided so the Feast of Tabernacles is, is celebrated in the fall. This is harvest time. It is now time to reap what has been sown. So here's the scene. City of Jerusalem is packed. And on the last day of the feast, the priest, they would go to the pool of Siloam. And these priests would gather the, the, the water in jugs, and then they would start to march around the temple seven times. And they would sing this, this song of praise from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 12, 2. They would sing this. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him. I will not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. So notice here, salvation and righteousness, they go hand in glove in the Old Testament. Two sides of the same coin there. So the Jews, they're singing this song, 
Hundreds of thousands of people are shouting for joy, and the priests are carrying this water, this physical water around the temple. Everybody's praising God, they're thanking God. And it's at this moment where Jesus stands up and he shouts this at John 7 37. On the last day and the most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he cries this. He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as scripture has said, you're going to have streams of living water deep within you. Man, you talk about some chutzpah right there. Think about that. Unbelievable. Jesus came to satisfy our hunger and our thirst. Guys, whatever the world offers you, will never fill this God-sized hole in your heart. Religious traditions will not. It's only Jesus. It's only him. He's the only one who can. So back to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they will be filled. They're going to be filled up. As our physical body hungers for provision, our spirit hungers in ways that we just don't understand. That phrase there, they will be filled, that's in the passive voice. It means that we can't do the filling on our own. We can try with good deeds. We, we can try and convince ourselves that our, our Christian service does the filling, but it won't. Why? Well, because we're, we're making, when we do that, we're making our service, we're making our lives about us many times rather than Jesus. Secondly, that the text has a divine passive, which means that the filling and the satisfying, it's, it only comes from God. This is the only way. It is a gift from him. So to hunger and thirst, that phrase there, it expresses a supernatural desire that is a gift from God. So just as our physical life depends on food and water, our Christian life depends on righteousness. Our hunger for ourself, our hunger for our old sin, it slowly and it steadily is being replaced by righteousness. There, there's a spiritual purification process that happens. And it never ends, by the way. Just when you think you've made it, don't ever believe that lie. You haven't made it. There's a whole lot more stuff the Lord wants to show you. Uh, I have found that many people come to Christ at this desperation level. That's how I came to Christ. Was that this, this hungering and thirsty, whatever I was chasing after the world was not satisfying. This, this hungering and thirsting comes from God and he's the one that has to fill it. And many of us who come to Christ during this time, we realize, wow, the, the world really has failed me. You know, all these things, all these lies that I've been, been pursuing. Hungering and thirsting for, for righteousness is a supernatural desire. Once again, this only comes from the Lord. It's a gift. If this was not a gift, the psalmist would never say this. Psalm 42, 2. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I 
come and appear before God. So as a church, are we that thirsty this morning? To be longing and praying for the anticipation to see a holy God face to face? Or are we feeding ourselves junk food? We all know the consequences of junk food. We know know what it does to our physical bodies. And I, I think the analogy carries over well, doesn't it, to our spiritual life. If we're feeding ourselves spiritual junk food, and this is really important, if we're, if we're feeding on spiritual fast food, we'll never say what the psalmist said there. Because we're going to be terrified at the thought of death. Now, being uneasy, being hesitant, being a bit scared to die, that's normal emotions for a Christian. But being terrified is something completely different. People are terrified of death because they don't know Jesus. They don't know him. They, they may know the facts about him. They, know, they may know the bibliography about Jesus. They may talk in Christianese to fit in the group. But if they are terrified to die, they don't know Jesus personally. The, the fruit in their lives, it reveals a biblical truth. And the biblical truth is this, guys, is that Jesus will be their judge and not their savior. That's why they're so scared. And yet Jesus, he's inviting people. He's always inviting. If you're hungry, come and, 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 and thirst. He, he does this even in the Old Testament. We see this in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Isaiah says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come and buy and eat. Come and, and buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good, not fast food, not junk food, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. In verse 3, pay attention and come to me. Capital M, this is Jesus. Come to me. And listen, listen to me and you will live. That was written five to seven hundred years before Jesus uh, was born. And now here we are, we fast forward back to the New Testament in verse 6. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This will happen. This is a promise from Jesus. So cool. Guys, this is amazing. The result here is that God blesses a righteous man with a supernatural filling. And when that filling goes away, the man does something about it. See, when the blessed man gets hungry, or he gets hungry when he's separated from the word of God, that the blessed man is is not hungering and thirsting for happiness, but righteousness. People who pursue happiness are miserable right? I could, we, could, we could spend so much time with, with everybody's testimony. This is all, all a part of it, isn't it? I did this. I believed the lie. I, I did this, and I tried this, and I worked my way here, and I did it, and it just left me more empty than before. 
And here's the thing. Here's the thing the Lord wants to show us today is that happiness is the byproduct of seeking and searching for righteousness. So key point number two for today. Righteousness leads to happiness. Righteousness leads to happiness. The other side of a blessed man being hungry is this, is that the blessed man gets hungry when solid biblical teaching and preaching becomes scarce. The blessed man fears a spiritual famine in the land. This verse in Amos terrifies a blessed man. Amos 8.11, the Lord says, look, he says, the days are coming when I'm going to send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread, not a famine of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And then verse 12, Amos says this, people will stagger from sea to sea and they're going to roam from north to east. Usually it says north to south, right? North to east, these guys don't even know where they're going. But they're, they're, they're lost and they're seeking the word of the Lord. Look at this now. They will not find it. That's a whole sermon in a sermon. So the question to stay on point here with this beatitude is, is how do you know that you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does this look like in our lives? How, how, is, it, how is it lived out practically? Well, to get there, let me, let me ask a few questions. Number one, do you depend on external things or we could say worldly things for satisfaction. The prophet Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> and it's true. We should probably ed edit that out of the video. <laughs> uh, to get, okay. Are you, are you, basically, are you satisfied with stuff? Are you satisfied with stuff? Are you content with what you, with what you can provide for yourself? And then on the other hand, are you dissatisfied with what you don't have? Are you always longing for more? See, God, God's word teaches us that if pretty sparkly things of this world, if they satisfy you, then you're not going to need, you're not going to see a need for God's satisfaction. And spiritually speaking, if you're pleased with your own righteousness, you're not going to see a need for God's either. Question number two, do you crave God's word? Do you long to be with God's people? Because there are only two things that matter, dear friends, God's word and God's people. Those are the only two things that are eternal. So let me, let me ask this question this way. Does a, a hungry man have to be told to eat? See, you don't have to, to beg a hungry man to eat, do you? And I think this is really an important lesson for the church, not just river, but the church. Because the, the world doesn't care about God because the world feeds them. And often we as the church, 
maybe to our error, sometimes we're busy begging people to come or we're wondering why our spouse or our kids, they're not reading the Bible or we guilt somebody into coming to a, a Bible study. And here's the thing. If people don't want to do these things, think about it. What's it tell us? It tells us they're not hungry for righteousness. Why? Because the world is feeding them. They're full. They are temporarily satisfied. You can't ask someone who just had a meal and invite them to an all-you-can-eat buffet. They're not going to come. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we don't pray for them. But it does, it does tell us something, right? It tells us maybe we should just step back and allow God to, to intervene there and have a little bit of God room. But our prayer for them is this, that they will eventually find this out. And that's key point number three. That unholiness leads to unhappiness. Our prayer for them is that they would find this out sooner than later. That their unholiness leads to unhappiness. Because the only way to experience happiness is to be right with God. So dear friends, are you right with God this morning? Are you? Is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? The, the Beatitudes, they, they show us how to do that. Now, now some, of you, some of you guys may be thinking, well, yeah, Dustin, but, you know, I kind of do feel like I've wandered and I'm a prodigal. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Prodigal son, right? This young son, he insults his, his dad, he takes the inheritance, he, he tries to satisfy this hunger and his thirst on everything that the world offers. He spends all of his money, a famine hits, he finds himself in, in really big trouble. And then he starts to get hungry. So he finds a job feeding pigs. He, he, he gets hungry and hungrier and hungry, and that desire to eat the, the pig's food grows in him. But here's the key. When he begins to starve, he repents and he runs to the Father. When he begins to starve. So if you're a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter this morning, the Lord is telling you today, quit starving, repent, and run. For the rest of us, let me just ask a few more questions for you to consider what God's doing in your life this morning. Number one, how is your appetite for God? Number two, what is the driving ambition of your life? And number three, what, what is it that you long for? See, the answer to these questions, it, it does something. It reveals what kingdom you're in. There are only two kingdoms, guys. You've got the kingdom of, of God, and you have the kingdom of darkness. So in other words, the answer to these questions, it, it really does determine whether or not you're a Christian. Where are you? The prophet Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah 15, 16. He said, your words were found, and I love it, I ate them. I ate your words. Your words became a delight to me. And the joy, Lord, you're the joy of my heart. You're the satisfaction of my soul. It's a pretty amazing experience to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is such a delight. There's such a joy there. 
And here's the thing, feeding on God's word, being around God's people, it actually increases our appetite for it, for the word, for one another, and and for him. The more you hunger and thirst, the hungrier you get. When Amy makes some homemade chocolate chip cookies and they come right out of the oven, uh uh-huh. I'll have one. And I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied, but I, I just got to have another. And then I got to have another, and then I just... But Gary, it's not one. It's not two. I, I got to pace myself. I turn into the cookie monster, man. And that's what, that's what hungering and thirsting is like on God's Word. Once you start, once you engage with Him, He will walk alongside of you guys, and He will, he will fill this desire in your heart. Last thing to to, uh, consider here as we hunger and thirst. It deals with certain conditions that we put on God at times. Remember the, the rich young ruler? He wanted God, but he only wanted God on his terms. Matthew chapter 19. So the rich young ruler, see, he wanted God and money. And dear friends, please know God... He doesn't share his glory with anyone. But here's the amazing thing. is that God, he will allow you to experience all that the world has to offer. He'll let you pursue that. He'll let you devour it. But please don't, don't think. Don't walk away from here this morning thinking that you can have God plus whatever it is you're chasing in the world. And here's the thing, we get, to, we get to make this choice just like we make other choices. We get to choose what we're going to feed ourselves with this week. But please do know this. Jesus said, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen? Amen. Amen.